Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Where are we tonight? Beatitudes, okay. And uh, what's our text for that? Matthew Matthew 5, all right? I just want to ask some questions I hope you'll ask every time you read the Bible. If, not always do we get the answers to it, but we need to know context. And so what's the context of Matthew chapter 5? I guess, uh, who's speaking? Okay, that's the typical Sunday school answer, isn't it? Who's speaking? Jesus. Jesus is speaking. All right, well, um, who is he speaking to? Disciples, and what's the? What do you think is the significance of that? There's intimate. There's an intimate um, setting for this. What? That this was a message for believers, or maybe those who are going to go into all the world and bring other people into relationship with God, and they're going to need to proclaim the kingdom to Gentiles, and what that's going to look like. Uh, I haven't really fully wrapped my mind. I don't know that there's one really good answer, but to the question, why just the disciples at this point? Why not all of the crowd that's gathered around? Um, okay, what's the what's the location? What, what's that? <laughs> this Mount of Beatitudes. All right, where wherever that is exactly, we don't know the exact location. They probably have some good idea of it. But the exact location maybe escapes as far as I know. Um, but it's a mountain probably northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Okay? So there's teaching that's happening. Let me, let me ask you this. Let's think in terms of a larger context. What's happening with the state of Israel at this point? Not, not today. Under occupation to who? Romans, okay? Are the Romans kind and they just give away things freely or is there some other system? <laughs> they, they, want, they want money, right? Especially from, they have a particular word for the tax that's uh, taken from non-citizens, an imperial tax, and they required of that of the, of the Jewish people. And just let's think through this a little bit. What was the approach, as far as you know, to receiving taxes? What's that? Okay, you went to jail if you didn't. How did they get the taxes? Tax collectors, okay? So you have people that are out there collecting taxes, and do you think that the tax collectors were as friendly as our IRS agents? (laughs) They took extra money. Like, you need, just need to turn in your taxes, and then, uh, you know, you need to grease the wheels a little bit, too. So there was uh, more to it than just collecting taxes. Like that little short guy. His name starts with a Z. Um, so just thinking through that, do you think that most of the population of uh, the Israeli population during that day were, were well off? Probably not. I I get the sense that there was no middle class. There was a, uh, or at least a very small middle class. Middle class is something that that happened much later with different economic developments. And so usually in this world, you can kind of see it in the scripture. You got the rich and the poor, and uh, most people are in the poor category. And then there's a few elites in terms of the rich. What what do you think? Um, just, I think this is important because it comes out in this one verse we're going to deal with tonight. What do you think the uh, idea or the sense was that people got from the fact that the Romans were there? You can answer that. There's not necessarily a right answer. This is a what's your opinion kind of question. Under oppression? Yeah. Okay. Okay. What do you think it says about their relationship with God. Okay. They, some probably did think that. Okay. 
Some others might have thought, it's just from my thinking, some others might have thought that, and there's a lot of writing out there that deal with this material, a lot that we haven't really tapped into as the church, Josephus and other intertestamental writings and rabbinical writings that come from that time that uh, one of my professors from Bible college says that he studied for, I think, uh, 40 years, and he says, I barely scratched the surface. We're talking about a lot of stuff. Okay, so if you think, you know, we're we're here in uh, 2022, and then we, we go way back, and then, you know, there's a big gap of silence, and then the Bible back there, there's a lot. You know what I'm saying? And it's not... It's not, we wouldn't take it as scripture, but there's a lot of confirmation and a lot of background insight that, that we could gain from knowing some of those things. But here, here's what I was trying to come to is maybe there's a lot of people looking for somebody to step up as a leader to get the Romans out. Well, some did, yes. And, they, and there were other messianic figures during that time too. It wasn't... It wasn't just Jesus. They were looking for just about anybody who would step up and be brave enough to take up arms against the Romans or to do something. And uh, sadly, I, I think there were a group of people that felt they were still, they'd never come back fully from exile. I mean, it's the, it's the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Greeks, you know, split and then the Romans, and when are we ever going to get out from under the Gentile oppressor? That's the thinking. And when is our Messiah going to come and deliver us and restore the kingdom of Israel to the glory of David's days? So they're looking for someone like the son of David to come. And it's really interesting because that plays a little bit into our passage. How does, how does the kingdom come about? That's the question that was on a lot of people's minds during that day. Do we, do we take up arms and make it happen? Do we wait upon God and let him bring it about? Are we waiting upon the Messiah, and what is that going to look like? And most people had a popular notion of what that looked like. And I will give you a hint. What Jesus was looked a lot different than the popular notion. Because what he was doing was far deeper, far richer, far more eternal than any earthly Messiah could have accomplished. If we were to bring it into our day in terms of a parallel, it would be like are voting for somebody and thinking that they're a savior versus what Jesus could do. You know, the right person in government could provide a lot of different uh, benefits to citizens. But then at the end of it all, we still die. And we're either in our sins or we're not. We have real needs that outlast this life that nobody that sits in office can take care of. Okay, I think we ought to be righteous in our politics, but let's not confuse our politics for our Messiah. Come on. It's good preaching, Pastor. Thank you. All right. We, we just want to, I want to think through that because this is where a lot of people were during this day. Why don't we read our verses through um, uh, one through verse five, and then we'll, we'll stop there. Okay, it says, now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We want to talk about this tonight um, as we think about meekness and uh, what that means and what it means to inherit the earth and what it means to be blessed is, uh, is bl can we be blessed and still be in bad circumstances at the present moment? Yeah, I think we can. I think we can be blessed because uh, the state that we're in as Christians is enviable to even the most wealthy, the most well-to-do, the healthiest because we have the promise of life and fullness and healing and wholeness. Did I say wholeness? If I said it twice, it deserves it. <laughs> we have the promise of all of that in Christ. So here, here's another shocking statement by Jesus. Imagine that. If the, if the edges have been dulled uh, to this little statement, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, it's probably because we've heard it so many times that we haven't stopped to think about what it actually means. So let's do that tonight. And my hope, as always, is that if we glean something from this, when we go home and study the Bible, I want our Bible study to be richer. 
as a result of that. Okay, so that's my hope. And um, I know every time, every time I come to the Word of God, I'm I'm amazed at how God can meet us and bring us to new depths. Um, okay, so uh, if the edges have been dulled, it's probably because we haven't thought uh, deeply about it. Uh, whoever the meek are, the Bible says Jesus says to his disciples, they're going to be inheriting the earth. And so without an exact understanding, we can start to see some things from it. We're going to look at a more exact understanding, but even without that, we can start to see things. And the first thing that we'd see is that it's surprising that the meek would inherit the earth. It's That's surprising. I don't know if you thought about this, but normally the people that are power players in our world are exactly that. They're power players. They're the ones who take up strength, they take up arms, they promote themselves, they express their ego, they, they show themselves strong in one way or another, and they're usually the ones that we think of getting the world. So we're surprised here that it's the meek that should end up getting the world in the end. And what this means for us is that conventional wisdom is overturned. Conventional wisdom says... Um, that those who fight and insist and throw their weight around and make the biggest noise, they're the ones who are going to get their way. Okay? People in power positions, people in big offices with great views. It's not wrong to have those things, but sometimes we attribute power to those areas, and we think that they're the ones who are going to inherit the earth. And what we find out here is rather surprising. It's not, it's not those who are out there throwing their weight around that are going to inherit the earth. It's the meek. Okay, So that, these are just rough edges. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. The second thing we, we see here is that the earth is not gained, it's given. Do you see that? The meek shall what? Inherit. Shall conquer? No. Shall get it by a lot of effort? No. Inherit. That means it belongs to somebody else who freely gives it to the meek. Do you see that? I mean, there's a lot of people out there clawing and climbing to try to get the earth. And in the end, they're not going to get it. Are you with me on that? Let's, let's uh, look at some verses on that in just a moment. But the meek will receive their part as an inheritance given, not something gained. And that makes a lot more sense that the world is not theirs because they fought for it. Somebody else did. And, and everyone fighting for the world to be theirs will be subjugated to the Son of God. Let's, uh, let's back out of our scripture here. and uh, If we said it a couple times, you could probably memorize it. And we wouldn't even need to turn back to Matthew 5. Okay? The meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall. Do we have the gist of it? Let's go to Psalm 2. Anybody know what's happening in this psalm? It's an enthronement psalm. It's talking about uh, about Christ the King. But yes, they are mad at God. And the question is asked, why do the nations rage or conspire? And the people plot in vain. Psalm 2, verse 1. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. This is, a, this is a, an enthronement statement. You, you do this at a, uh, we don't call it an inauguration. What's the proper term? What is it? Coronation. Thank you. That is exactly it, a coronation. Uh, there's a coronation taking place here. And so uh, we know from history that after David, at least, this was a statement that was said in the Davidic dynasty when the next king came to power. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Even though they're already born, even though they already existed, it was a way of saying you're following in my footsteps as king. So we hear this here. You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the end of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Anybody ever sing the song, Ask of me, and I will give the nations as an inheritance to you? 
I always thought that was kind of funny because if we continued singing the psalm, it would say, and he will rule with rod of iron, and he'll dash them to pieces like pottery. We wouldn't sing that in a worship song, but that's what comes next, that he's the one that is going to rule with a rod of iron. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, uh, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So understand this as as poetry. We know the Lord is slow to anger, but what he's saying here is if you presume in your rebellion at any moment, that could be your demise, right? Understand that? So this here is talking about how when it's all said and done, and you can see this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, though he was equal with God, he didn't cling to that. Instead, he made himself nothing. He descended lower and lower, I'm just paraphrasing here, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. Okay, so we understand that there's a day when every knee will bow. All kingdoms will be subjugated under the Son of God, right? Um, I think of the the verse, I love this verse, I almost cry every time I say it just because it's so moving to think about. The kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ, and He'll rule forever and ever. In other words, He's going to, He's going to bring them all together under His leadership. And what that means is dethronement for a lot of kings and enthronement of one king. So, the question I would ask is, are we fighting for our own kingdom, or are we trusting God for his kingdom to come? You see what I'm saying? That a lot of the, the fights and wars, James tells us that you fight and you war, you kill. And he says, why do you do that? Because you, you want and you cannot have, so you do all these things to get it. You should have just asked Right? That's what he says there, and then he calls them to repent. So this is the reason a lot of fighting is happening, is that people are clawing and climbing for their own kind of thing. So Jesus is telling his disciples the surprising truth, as he has so many other times, that the conventional ways of winning the world don't work in the long run, because all the kingdoms of the world will become his. So instead of fighting and clawing for it, why not trust him? Why not trust him? Get in the boat with Jesus and let him bring the kingdom about. That doesn't mean that we don't work hard for things in life or stand up and take proper stands when it's time to be accounted, right? We need to do that. But how is the kingdom brought about? Is it through military action? We go around forcing people at gunpoint to become Christians? To expand the kingdom in that way? I mean, it has been done. In the name of Christ, sadly. But that's really not Jesus' uh, mode of operation, is it? And it's not the disciples' mode of operation. So where did they get that? I'll tell you what happened is they took Christian truth and applied worldly principles. Worldly principles are force is right. And we ought to use it in order to expand the kingdom. And uh, it turns out to be disastrous. Well, let's talk about the meek here. I'm going to write this up here. The meek. All right. So what, what does, what does it mean? Uh, what does it mean when we say meek? Timid. Okay. And I'm glad you said that. That's uh what some folks um, are thinking when we say the meek will inherit the earth. Humble, okay. Gentle, good. What else? What else could we say in regards to the meek? Quiet. Gentle, okay. Well, the, we have trouble with uh, this word for three reasons. What, what is that? Submissive. Okay, that's good, and, and we're coming to that, Jeremy. Thanks for preaching my sermon for me. <laughs> no, I'm glad that I mean, you got, you're right on on that. That's, ex, that's part of it. 
But here's, uh, here's the thought. There, there's a problem with understanding this word for three reasons. And the first reason is that no two words in any two languages are exactly the same. Did you know that? You can't take a word and just plug it in. Uh, <laughs> we have, uh, what's your name, right, in English? What is that in Spanish? Anybody know? Okay, what, what does llamas mean? What is it? No, it's called. What are you called? How are you called? It's not exactly one for one, is it? And that, that's the way a lot of words work. And this is one of them, is that we don't have a, a really good exact word in English for this word in Greek and probably spoken by Jesus in either Aramaic or Hebrew. So making that one for one jump and going, well, this is the right translation, that's really hard. And we can see that uh, as we look at some scripture. So no two words are exactly alike. We're, we're getting our word from the Greek and there's, there's not just a one for one word that overlaps nicely. Um, think, for example, about the word love. Hey, have you... Have you thought about Have you thought about the word love? So I'm just going to put this up here, and we'll talk about um, this again. Let's just say our English words look like diamonds. All right, this is a baseball diamond more than it is a an actual ring diamond. Okay, and uh, this is our word love here. Okay, and then in Greek, uh, can you think of any words for love there? Okay. Agape, anything else? Okay. All right, so let's call this one agape. Okay, this one is eros. I heard that mentioned first. Uh, storge. Okay. I don't even think storge is in the New Testament, but it is a Greek word that talks about affection. And then what was the other one? Okay, Philadelphia or phileo. And, and here's the trouble is that this these two words... Right here, can you see my cursor there? Okay, these two words, they overlap in the New Testament. So there's some, there's some sharing. And you could probably find some overlap in some of these others as well. But um, the problem is, our English word love not only talks about these kinds of loves, but also has other kinds of definitions that wouldn't be included in Greek. Like we talk about, man, I really love a good hot dog right now. Uh, that, would, that sounds really good. I haven't eaten since whatever time. Um, so I don't know that they would use <laughs> they would use agape for that, right? <laughs> or phileo or storgi or, or any of these for that. And so we have a problem, and what we have to do is find the best word we can. And here's what I want to suggest to you as English speakers, is we have a really rich language, and we have a really rich set of Bible translations. And even more importantly than going to our English dictionary and looking up the word that's in the Bible, if you compare Bible translations, you're going to find out what different scholars think is a good word for this. And so that's one of the best ways to do that. I'm going to share some of those in just a moment. But um, for, for example, the translations on the meek shall inherit the earth is uh, the NLT says those who are humble. Some of you mentioned that. Those who are humble, the humble will inherit the earth. The, the New American Standard Bible, uh, the gentle, the gentle. What's that? Obedient? Yeah, and it could be, there could be obedient. Uh, Lexum, no, it's not Lexum, it's the Legacy Standard Bible, which is kind of an offshoot of the NASB. The lowly, this is kind of reflecting the humble once again. And so we're getting some pictures of this, but but even there, the words don't exactly overlap. So we want to take a look at maybe what this could look like here. Let's just call this, this is the Greek word if you're interested. Okay, prowess. All right. And so let's just say over here, we've got our diamond and this one is humble. Okay, H, gentle, right here. Uh, let's call that gentle. Let's call this, um, what was one of the other ones that we we mentioned? Meek, let's call it meek. Okay, so none of these words exactly fill up that spot, so we have to use a lot of different words to kind of describe this, this one word in Greek, prowess. All right, um, 
it's talking about something that we don't exactly catch in our language. The, the Greek dictionaries on this, one of them says pertaining to being gentle and mild. Another one uh, says to not being overly impressed by one's sense of self-importance. The meek are those who are not overly impressed with how important they are. All right? So that, that's a good one. Uh, that's the standard Greek uh, lexicon for Bible translators. Um, gentle, humble, considerate, meek is how they would translate that. And then Lytle and Scott, mild or gentle, not, not extreme in a lot of ways, you know, not given to, to the kinds of extremes that might cause one to take up arms and, and fight off all of the Romans, for example. Okay. So that's one problem, is that we don't have an exact one word for word, um, one word for another. Second is that we have a misunderstanding in our culture and a bias against it about what meekness means. Okay, so uh, timidness or meekness meaning there's a word that sounds just like meekness that we often confuse with meekness. What is it? Weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Okay, I hope you'll you'll hear that. Meekness is not weakness. Weakness and meekness are not the same. They sound alike, and that's unfortunate because a lot of times people have uh, plugged that in. And so I don't know, know if you remember, well, several years ago they had this uh, this T-shirt brand that was putting out these provocative T-shirts that were uh, trying to be cool. And, and one of the statements was, the meek shall inherit nothing. Yeah, in other words, you got to, if you want it, you got to go get it and make it happen. And, and, you know, there are some things that's true of, like, we can't just sit back and, and do nothing. But that's, we're not, when we're talking about gaining the kingdom that only God can give, you can't get there in your power, right? And the earth that he's promised us, we can't get there by revolutionary action. If we took up arms and we militated against the whole world and made everybody live under the moral banner of Christianity, that doesn't mean everybody's saved, are you with me? And if we, they could fight back against that. doesn't mean we shouldn't make moral laws. We should make moral laws. My point is that we can't force people to become Christian through some kind of show of force. We're using, actually, the enemy's tactics rather than God's. God's tactics, Christ's tactics, which we'll see in just a moment, is that he was gentle and humble. And so we have this cultural misunderstanding against it, against meekness that is weakness, because they sound alike. Uh, gentleness, meekness, humility, they're not indicators of weakness, but of great strength and faith. Meek in the modern English has a negative connotation of someone who is submissive and easily imposed upon. And uh, it's really not there, It's really not what the Bible is talking about here. A good translation according to, uh, there's a set of handbooks on Bible translation for those who are on the mission field called the UBS Bible Handbook. And there they said a good translation of this would be something like those who don't trust in their own power. The meek are those who don't trust in their own power. You can be strong, but we're not ultimately putting our trust there. You understand? And we'll, we'll come to some more uh, nuances of this in just a moment. But then uh, as we think about this, one of the reasons for the cultural bias is the view of the world uh, is that nothing in this world can be uh, achieved through meekness. Nothing in this world can be achieved through meekness. There is this cultural backlash that is taking place against this right now, and you may not feel it, but it's been happening for uh, over a hundred years now. And it started with a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a German philosopher. And he taught that power makes right. There's no, there's no moral law. That's an imposition of Christianity. And in fact, he found himself nauseated by Christianity because it elevated the weak at the expense of the strong, and it set us back culturally. Well, I would beg to differ. That It set, has not set us back culturally. We're more advanced in terms of science, medicine, care for people. We're more, uh, we find more equality among people than we ever have in the world's history. And those things are not from our secular sophistication. Those things came from Christianity. Come on, it's true. So we often think that, and, 
And so people think that you can't really achieve anything. They bought into Nietzsche's. If you've ever heard anybody say Christianity is a crutch, they're Nietzscheites. That's what they are. They believe that this is a crutch for the weak. And what I've found among the Christians that I've known is that Christians are some of the strongest people out there, not because we need a crutch so much as that we found the one thing in life we're living for. And it takes courage to be a Christian in today's world. You can't just be a Christian and it just be easy. It's hard at times to be a Christian. You're, you're a salmon swimming upstream. Come on, we live in Alaska. We ought to get that picture, right? Swimming against the current, fighting off bears, <laughs> right? And so you understand that there's a, a challenge to doing that, and it's not for the timid. It's not for the weak. So maybe in this world we can... People might say you can do nothing. Uh, you can't achieve anything through meekness. And the Christian response is that nothing in the next life can be accomplished with self-sufficiency. Are you with me? You know what I mean by that? Now we're flipping the tables and we're saying it may be true that there are some things in this life that we won't get to unless we assert ourselves. Okay, fine. That's fine. Maybe there are some things we don't need to get in this life. Okay. The other side of that is you can't get anything in the next life by asserting yourself. In terms of you can't win your salvation, you can't earn your salvation. It's given to us freely. So we have to figure out what all of this, what all of this means. So people have drawn conclusions about what meek means. And in terms of this passage, there's some different interpretations. I'll give you what is out there, and you can make up your mind, and then I'll tell you what I think this is talking about. The first uh, understanding of the meekness that Jesus is talking about is synonymous with poor or powerless. And the reason that people uh, think that this this uh, word here for meek actually means poor or powerless is that when it translates a passage in the Old Testament, it's using a similar Hebrew word to what uh, is used of poor in spirit previous to this. Okay, so in other words, it's drawing on a word that is like poor. And so some have thought that that means that this is referring to poor. And poor has to do with status, and I don't think that's what this is talking about is status. I think this is talking about disposition. Okay, so that's one interpretation. The second is that meek uh, is the attitude of humility, and uh, what's meant here is just humble, humble by itself and, and nothing more. I think humility is part of it, but is this the main, the main dish in meekness here? Is, is it humility or is it something else? I think humility is an ingredient, but I'm not going to call it the main thing. Okay, so that's one interpretation. You can take that if you like, and that would be a, one of the better ones. A third one is that meek is related to the word humble, but has to do with looking to God, as Jeremy mentioned a moment ago, versus looking to power. So there is humility, but it's the kind of humility that says, um, I don't have the answers to everything. In fact, I don't have the answers to the most important things. And in my strength, I can't do the most important things. But God can, so I'm looking to you. And despite the fact that right now the, the, uh, the, the oppressor, and we feel this less and less than they did in the Bible times, but it's still there, that we're feeling that the system is pushing us down against, like there's a gravity against following God. There's a, a tendency to want to suppress the move of God and the people of God. Okay. Despite that fact that if we'll look to God, we will, we will overcome in the end. We're looking to Him. It's a, it's a dependence. It's a dependent relationship that says, I can't by sheer grit fight this battle. Look, do you know that uh, we, a lot of us have a lot of determination here, and some here have been through some really hard things in life. But when it comes to spiritual battles, you don't beat the devil by having grit. Okay, you need grit, but... He's been at this a lot longer than we have. Have you ever outwitted your kids in a good way? <laughs> Anybody? And the reason is because you've been around the block a time or two, and you knew when they were lying to you because when you were that age, you were probably doing that. Okay? Maybe or maybe not. Well, the devil has been around the block a few times, and so if it's not for God and his wisdom and the promptings of the Holy Spirit and 
the, the help of God's word, we would be in, in real trouble. And so we look to him and he brings about victory. Okay, so meekness, I think, is related to the word humble and gentle, but it has to do with a kind of dependence upon God. And here's the interesting thing. I said meekness isn't weakness. Is The word was used by classical Greeks, uh, Greek writers of tamed animals. Listen to this. This is interesting. Uh, that suggests the idea of yielding power to another. It's used for an animal which has been domesticated, which has been trained to obey the word of command. I, I heard that a moment ago, obedience which has learned to respond to the reins. Think of a horse that has been trained, and it's able to be turned. Okay? Do you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but that horse is more powerful than the rider. Okay? Now, and uh, that works for a moment, but in the analogy that we're talking about, God, who we need to obey, is more powerful than us, but he's looking for a will that is yielded to him. Okay, so think about this for a moment. That horse has been trained. What it is, what meekness comes to be, is power under constraint. So it's power. We have our power. God doesn't take our power from us, but there are times when we don't exercise it, our human power, because we're trusting in him and waiting on his timing. If you need a picture for that, think about David, anointed to be king, on the run from King Saul for the better part of a decade. He gets to En Gedi. They go into a cave. Saul's in the cave, comes into the cave to go to the bathroom. All the guys are saying to David, this is your chance to become king. Exercise your power. Strike him down. Or just give the word and I'll go strike him down. It wouldn't be right to do it that way. Power under constraint. Why? What constrained him? The law of God. The knowledge of God, the relationship to God, wanting to be faithful to his calling and letting God have it in his timing, even though it meant the long and hard road rather than the shortcut. That's meekness. David was powerful in battle, but he could cry like a baby. Are you with me? There's something beautiful about that dichotomy in him. I think as men, sometimes we get the John Wayne mentality that we, you know, we should never say we're sorry and never cry a tear. No. Be bold. Do big things. Be assertive in terms of your calling in God, but be gentle towards God and trusting God. And when God says, stop, don't move another step. Right? Are you with me on that? That there's a, there needs to be constraint to the power that God has given us. So it's an animal which has been domesticated or trained to obey the word of command. And so it learns to respond to the reins. And it's a word for an animal which uh, has learned to accept control. And it's the blessing of those who are now completely God-controlled. For only in this service do we really find perfect freedom. Uh, Philo, who was a contemporary of Jesus, but he was a Hellenistic Jew, which means he, he lived, I think he lived in Alexandria. He lived outside of um, the promised land area. He wasn't Galilean. He wasn't from uh, the Judean area. He lived in Egypt. And uh, yet he wrote, he wrote in Greek, but he wrote from a Jewish perspective. And he used this same word for Moses. Do you remember that passage in Numbers 12, verse 3, when Miriam is complaining about Moses? You know what the Bible says about Moses? Moses, and Moses was the meekest man alive. There was not another man who was meeker than Moses or more humble than Moses. And I want to ask you something. Who wrote Numbers? <laughs> that takes true humility to write that about yourself. Lord, you know how this is going to sound, right? <laughs> and Moses was the meekest man, meekest man alive. I know there's, uh, I know there's, uh, other interpretations of how those books were written, but Jesus credited those to Moses, so I'm going to stick with him. And so here, uh, thinking about that, he's written this, and there was a time when Moses, you know, he had the S on his chest, and any time a trouble thing happened, he kind of pulled his shirt open and went to work, didn't he? To, uh, um, uh, well, an Egypt, Egyptian and an Israelite were 
in conflict and one was being beaten and Moses went over and did something. What did he do? He killed him, right? And then he he's like, it's a good time for a vacation to Midian, and he gets away. And then he comes to the place where he sees his wife, his future wife, and some men are pestering her. What does he do? Goes and rescues her. He's always like breaking out and running after something and accomplishing something. And he's, he wants to be the hero. And after several years, he learns to let God be in control. Incidentally, do you know what it was that kept Moses out of the promised land? He struck the rock. God said to him, speak to the rock. Before he struck the rock. But they were in an area now, from my understanding, they were in an area at this moment when anybody could strike the rock and get water out of it because the water was just below the surface there. If he was going to show the magnificence of God's power, he needed to speak to it. And instead of doing that, he was angry, and he let his meekness go. And he struck the rock, and God said, because you did that. sounds like such a harsh thing. You don't get to go into the promised land. I'll let you see it from afar, but you don't get to go in. Because he wasn't meek. He was supposed to live up to that meekest man alive. But he didn't quite do that. F.F. Bruce says in his commentary, the meek are the opposite of the self-assertive. I think what it means in is uh, personal power constrained because we trust in God. We're humble enough to trust in God, and so we let him have his way and his timing instead of retaliating. In a moment when we've been mistreated, we let the Lord deal with that. What does Romans 12 say? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, be kind. You know how hard it is to be kind when you've been insulted? It's hard. But that's a sign of real trust, is when you can say, God, you got all of the, you've got all of the equity and the justice under control. I can just be in default love mode. Are you following me on that? That we don't, have to, we don't have to detour our actions based on how somebody else is acting. We can be standard Christian equipment, if you want to call it that, in love mode all the time. Because God's got that other part taken care of. I don't mean some kind of weird, naive thing that we've got to run around with a plastic smile all the time. But I'm talking about the kind of thing that says, I can let go of that. Um, offense because God's got it. So we trust him with it. Did you ever notice Jesus didn't use his power to defend himself? The only thing that I can think of that's anything like this is when they wanted to throw him off the top of a hill and stone him, and he slipped through the crowd. And it almost seemed like magic when I read it. I don't know about you. I hate to say that word. Don't get offended. I don't believe in that kind of magic. But it just, he almost like slips through them. Like they can't control it. Maybe he's just that agile. But he got away. And he never uses his power to defend himself. So what does this look like, this meekness? Um, in contrast to the representation of the political messiahs of Jesus' day, Jesus did away with the use of force to bring about the rule of God. His activity on earth is that the he's that of the Old Testament king that brings salvation without using force of war. And I think people's minds began to churn um, when he fed the 5,000. You remember that? that uh, anybody remember what happened after he fed the 5,000? There was something that just about happened. I think John tells us this in his gospel. They went to make him king by force. And again, he slipped away. So <laughs> Jesus always <laughs> slipping away when people try to force him into some kind of scenario that it's not his time for. And that's interesting to me that he just, he kind of slips away. What were they thinking well, here's what I think they were thinking. Man, if he can multiply food like this, he can feed an army. If he can multiply food like this, maybe he can multiply weapons like this. If he can multiply weapons like this, maybe he can multiply people like this. I don't know where their minds would have went, but the thought would have been, here's a miraculous leader 
who I think we think can lead us to victory over the Romans. That's what they're thinking. A lot of people are thinking in terms of political victory. Plus all the prophecies. They did. And there were Davidic prophecies, but the problem is they saw it as flat when there was actually depth to it. They somehow, and we do this too, we separate from our mind all the other passages. Because there are a lot of other passages that talk about the Messiah as a suffering servant. And they somehow neglected all of that. Remember Peter, when Jesus said, I'm going to be going to the cross, he said, you will never go to the cross. He pulled him aside and rebuked him. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what kind of, you're an offense to me. You're standing in the way of God's way, his kingdom way. Why? Because all Peter could think about was that Jesus was going to be elevated more and more to the place of some kind of political figure. He didn't see that what Jesus was going to accomplish, he was going to accomplish by descending to the place of dying a slave's death. He didn't see that. Nobody would have seen that with conventional wisdom. Even though he seemed to have said it over and over again, you know, it just ricocheted off people's hearts and minds. So Jesus did it a different way. They wanted to bring him and make him king by force. Here's an interesting thing that happened, too, that shows he didn't fit neatly into any political party. There were, there were four main sect, sects of uh, Judaism during that day, and some of them were larger than others. What were they? The Pharisees, and then Sadducees, the Zealots. And the Essenes. And the Zealots could have been part of the Pharisees. They could have been a subset. And um, so you have these different areas. And Jesus had conflict with everyone except the Essenes because the Essenes bailed and separated themselves. And so we don't know of any conflict with them. But he, he didn't live that kind of lifestyle. He didn't live a monastic lifestyle. He didn't go and be like, the world's too evil. I need to be holy. I need to get away from it preserve myself. He didn't do that. Instead, he was called the friend of sinners. Imagine that. So there was one one group in particular, and I know he often had conflict with the Pharisees at the temple. He had conflict with the Sadducees. Uh, the Zealots, we don't see a direct conflict, but I think there is one. And, and one of the places that it happened is when somebody challenged Jesus on paying taxes. Do you remember that? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And the objection was that we shouldn't, and they actually minted special coins for the land of uh, Israel because the, the, the Jews didn't believe in having images on their coins because that would have violated one of the commandments. And so they, the Romans actually conceded and minted special coins. But when he called for a coin, somebody brought one with an image on it. Whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's and to to God what's God's. Whose image is God on? Is God's image on? (laughs) It's on ours, right? So Jesus is essentially saying, you can give the money away. That's got Caesar's image on it. That's his. But give yourself to God. Okay. Now listen to this. Here's the problem that is is that the man who started the inspiration for the Zealot Party was a man named Judas of Galilee, and his main objection was paying taxes to Rome. We can't pay taxes to Rome because that's slavery and idolatry. And so he started a whole movement. didn't end well. But it started a Zealot movement, and what Jesus did here, we don't see it, we don't hear it, but he effectively set himself in his policy against the zealots. They would not have agreed with that. They would have, if he had followers, and he did have one disciple who was a zealot, was his name. Simon, Simon the zealot, not Simon Peter, a different Simon. But uh, most of the zealots would have been offended by that very thing. And what he did is he showed us that he wasn't trying to go about making a political kingdom. In fact, when he stood before Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you a king? And, and they conversed a little bit, and he said, I, I, could have called, 
I could have called angels down to rescue me, but my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my followers would have fought. He was giving very viable proof to, to Pilate that, look, we're not trying to make some kind of political kingdom. That in and of itself would have offended a lot of Jewish expectations. They wanted that kind of leader. In fact, that's what kind of guy Barabbas was. Okay, I don't have time to talk about that, but that's interesting too. Instead, Jesus is a different kind of leader. Is this a favorite characteristic of Matthew's, this uh, meekness, this gentleness? Because he brings it up again and again. Matthew chapter 11, 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle, prowess, and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. I'm meek. This is the kind of leader we have. You'll find rest for your soul. Take a yoke upon you, and you'll see that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You know, um, in this next one, Jesus reasoned with the Pharisees that the Sabbath was for man and not man for the Sabbath. And then he heals a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus instead of allowing uh, it to escalate. He, he withdraws, and he begins to heal people telling them not to let others know about him. That's one of the strangest things, is I think he's trying to limit the the growth of this and the knowledge of this so that the it can develop at a proper time. That's what I think is happening. But he tells people, don't tell anybody about this, and then they say that he's the Messiah. He says things like, don't tell anybody. In fact, uh, what's interesting is anytime anybody associate, associates him with the Messiah or the son of David, he almost immediately says... He calls himself the son of man. It's like he's detracting not from those titles because he is the son of man. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. But there's a lot of baggage that come with those titles that he's trying to steer clear of. And so he wants people to know the kind of Messiah he is, the son of man. And that has some implications from Daniel 7 that are really powerful. But uh, here in Matthew 12, verse 18... Uh, this uh, this statement is said about Jesus. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, one, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and proclaim justice to the nations. Listen, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope He's not trying to be some kind of uh, political revolutionary. He's trying to be a gentle Messiah. He's trying to bring about through meekness a kind of kingdom. And here's the problem is that sometimes we've taken on Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and then we've applied pre-redeemed methodology to our Christian living. You know what I mean by that? That he's the meek Messiah, but somehow we're not meek, and we're going to make the kingdom come by force. Are you with me? When what needs to happen is we need to take on more and more the character of Jesus. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. You know what the fruit of the Spirit is? It's the character of Jesus. That's what it is. It's the character of Jesus growing inside of us on an ever-increasing basis. And so when it talks about the Spirit coming into our lives, the fruit of the Spirit, one of them, gentleness, prowess, meekness. The result of the Holy Spirit living in us is that we live like Jesus, that we display this characteristic that makes us capable of inheriting the earth. Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's from Zechariah. Nine nine. Do you know what the word there is? Gentle is prowess. Jesus doesn't come in on a white uh, stallion. He comes in on a donkey. Do you know how ridiculous donkeys are? They're they're ridiculous. And one of the reasons that he rode in ridiculous like that is that he was following the example of Solomon, who was saying, "I'm a humble, gentle, meek king." David was a man of war. Solomon was the king of peace. 
right? You can almost hear it. Shalom, Solomon. It's the king of peace. And you know who's even more the king of peace? Jesus. So he comes in riding on a donkey, and then you can hear in Matthew 20 about the way that the rulers of the Gentiles rule. Who are the meek? Well, instead of throwing our weight around, um, ambitious, driven to make it happen in our own strength, the meek are those who are yielded to God, allowing him to bring the kingdom about in his time and his way. At the end of Jesus' life, the disciples are kind of, you almost like, how can you be asking that at this point in the story? But I'm just going to chalk it up to they haven't received the fullness of the Spirit yet. <laughs> but Jesus is getting ready to ascend. They're all standing there waiting for his departure. And one of them asks, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's not for you to know the times of the seasons, but you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But wait at Jerusalem till you receive power from on high, and then those things will happen. And that's what's really interesting here is that he is going to bring the kingdom down, but it's going to come in a different way. It's going to come by winning hearts to loyalty and obedience to the law of God. The kingdom is wherever there are obedient hearts to God. And we're all this far away in Alaska now. That's a long way from there. And the kingdom has come here. When will he restore the kingdom? Kingdom's now. And it's growing. And there's coming a day when he'll come back and we'll see it manifested in its fullness. I have to hurry because I got three minutes and I got 20 minutes worth of stuff. All right. So let's, let's go quick here. Let's hear some thoughts that I have on this. Um, we might have a problem with this whole idea of meekness. We like to take life by the horns and make something happen. We're, we're Americans, after all. We, we go and we make things happen. And we may lose sight of three things here that I want to keep in mind, that most people through history have stood powerless against the system. We have a little bit of power, but if you think about it, well, I'll get to that in a moment. Most people have not had a lot of power against the system or none. And the second thing is that our own power is limited to change our circumstances. We have influence, but not all influence. There are things that happen to us that we didn't choose, right? And even if we stand up and say, we've probably seen this in some elections recently, even if we stand up and say, this is what I think is right, a lot of other people said something different, and you can feel very small in that. Minority. You know what I mean? So we're not powerful enough to do everything we want to do. The third thing is that our trust in God, it's, it's in God who brings us into the land and makes all this possible. Let's quickly move into this next part. We'll inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. What is meant by the earth? This is, this is a quote. This whole passage really is a quote from Psalm 37. And so why don't we turn there real fast and Read a few verses out of this, Psalm 37. If you're in Psalm 2, it's 35 the other way. Do not fret because of those who are evil or envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like the green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness, uh, righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed. Those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Listen, we're not quite there yet. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the righteous, and it goes on and on. And so the, the thought here, if we're going to understand this passage, which is the background for Jesus' statement here, the psalm is about enduring a wicked world by humbly entrusting our way to the Lord, doing the right thing. And there's three points from this psalm. One is that the righteous suffer in a fallen world for a while. Okay, and That's not a cheering point, but it's true. The second thing is the wicked succeed in a fallen world for a while. 
Okay. The third is the Lord will reward the righteous and punish the wicked after a while. Okay. So the key to understanding this, the interpretive key to Psalm 37 is a while. When you delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart, when do you get the desires of your heart? After a while. Okay. So maybe it's not right away. After a while. If you make your delight the Lord, then he will reward you for that. So the righteous person has to look to the Lord and continue to do what's right. And when the Lord comes, there will be a great reversal that takes place. Peter says this, and trust yourself to the Lord and continue to do good. First Peter 4, 19. So what's meant by inherit? I've got to move quickly through this. So let me summarize in this. That this is going back to the, um, the understanding of Israel being tied to the land. And I think when we get into the New Testament, we see an expansion of this. It gets bigger. It doesn't go away. It gets bigger. Okay? It's not just the land. It's the whole earth. I don't know what's exactly going to take place in the future. Uh, those who are ethnic Israel may inherit specifically the, the land of Israel. Maybe. I don't know. I do know this. The Bible promises that the meek will inherit the earth. And so it seems to me that the boundaries have been moved out. Are you with me? To encircle the globe. God's people will inherit the earth. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. In Romans 4 verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that the world would be, that they would be heir to the world. But... uh, through the righteousness that comes by faith. It's interesting because here it doesn't say the typical word for uh, land that you would expect here. It says cosmos, world. They will inherit the world. So even Paul in his understanding has expanded this now beyond just inheriting that little sliver of land in the Middle East. God's people inherit the world. Okay, I said on Sunday that after you go to heaven, we don't play harps on clouds. We have responsibilities. What are they? We're going to have some kind of ruling position in the world. Okay, There's a new heavens, new earth. We don't just die and go to heaven. Are you with me? There's a new heavens and a new earth. And if I understand this right, and I'm not sure that I do, but I think I do, that there's life after life after death. <laughs> you understand that we die and we go to heaven if we're Christians, but then there's a resurrection of the bodies. And what do we need bodies for if there's not a world to live in? The earth will melt with the fervent heat, and then I saw a new heavens and a new earth drop out of heaven. And there's going to be a new place where you'll stand on your feet once again. Job said, I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end I'll stand on the earth. Though my flesh be destroyed, yet with my eyes I shall see God. With my own eyes I will see him. Man, that's good news, isn't it? I mean, we're not, we're not doomed to be some kind of spirit people. We're going to have spirit and some kind of transcorporal body. And by that, I mean something different and something similar. Amen. Well, I've gone beyond my notes here. When will that be? In the future. Soon enough. Good. When will that be? Soon enough. The meek will, what's that projecting us towards? A future, a future, right? The meek will inherit the earth. Maybe not today, maybe it's not tomorrow, but the promise is there. Not the strong, not the powerful, not the assertive. Those who have constrained power and look to God and trust, they'll inherit the earth. You and I, not the Hollywood execs who are making all the decisions, not Washington, not New York, not London or Paris or wherever. Somebody say Dallas. (laughs) Um, It's the meek. And for that reason, we are blessed. We're blessed. I had to summarize a lot. If you're interested in the notes, come see me afterwards. I can get you or send you a copy and you can see what we missed. But the gist of it's there. Hey, thanks for your gracious attention tonight. It's exciting, all of it. Yes. Sunday? Okay. All right. Jeremy and Monolin are heading to the Philippines. I know they're they're going to see friends and family, but they're also going to minister. 
And so we want to pray that God would be with them and give them strength and power to do that. Why don't you guys stand and maybe a few people around you can lay hands on you tonight. Then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for um, these promises that that help us. We may feel powerless to change certain things in our world, but uh, we know a world is coming that you uh, are king of. And so we're just trusting in you and we're looking to you and we have joy even on bad days. And so thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for that resolve and resilience. God, I pray for Jeremy and Monal as they prepare to go to the Philippines and spend time with family and do ministry there, that you would open the doors for them and cause them to be effective. And we pray, Lord, that you help the church that's there to be strong and equipped in every way. Pray that you give them messages on their hearts and minds and love in their heart for all that they'll come in contact with and wisdom to reach others. And if there's family that needs a special word from you, I pray that you put it in their heart. They might know what to say. Keep them safe. Um, Help them to enjoy their time. Keep them healthy. We pray you bring them back safe in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a good night. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.